the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Monday edition of The Ride Home. It was a good weekend, wasn't it? It it was a very good weekend. It started Friday night Mm -hmm. with such a great cruise with Word FM listeners. Holy smokes. Really. We had such a good time. Thank you so much for those of you who joined Mm -hmm. us. And the weather added a little bit of drama. Uh, I haven't driven in weather that bad in several years. Mm -hmm. And you weren't even piloting the boat. No, I wasn't. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Did you have trouble getting home? Uh, Not particularly. Okay. No. I mean, the roads were, they were snow covered, a little shaky, right? The only problem is when you, you know, when there's snow, you know, people do two things. They put their flashers on and go 10 miles an hour. Those careful people. Or they're driving four by fours and they're heroes of the road and they're going 90 miles an hour. And then, you know, regular drivers trying to navigate between those two particulars. That's how it always is. Having said all that, though, the cruise itself, the Valentine's cruise, the the people who showed up, all of our listeners, we talked, I think, to everyone Mm -hmm. on the boat. Yep. At least we tried to. We certainly tried If we tried missed to. you, we yeah. apologize, but we went from table to table to say hi. We heard some great stories. Met some great people. Fabulous. I mean, it, I just love it. I, I really know. do. To be out there and be part of the mix and uh, Absolutely. the community here of uh, believers. So thanks, everybody. Really good. Yeah. So we sure hope to be doing it again in the summer and welcome more of you back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, also, I want to say, John, that uh, I'm exhausted from the weekend. Mm-hmm. Had a big birthday celebration for uh, our daughter, which was a ton of fun. Excellent. I did a lot of cooking, mm-hmm. and I did bake a carrot cake and not eat it. You didn't eat it? I did not eat it. Thank you. Because you're part of the no right. sugar Jenner. Right. The I, I gave up sugar for Lent. Not even tempted well, to have one piece. I had to, well, of course... Not even tempted? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was perpetually tempted. Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. And it was hard, but it did. Here's the thing. Giving up food is just stupid, right? It's just it's just a way to kind of get your mind engaged in the fact that you have to make some sacrifice somewhere in your life. Right. It did work in me. Because why? What it happened? It made me think about of it. Of course. It made and... me think about the fact that there was something I wanted that I Chose to. not to have. Mm-hmm. I chose not to have. It and, is good for me. And not to over-spiritualize it. I hate, it. I hate it. it so much, but, but it is good for me. In that struggle of I want this, in some way, it drew you closer. Yes, it did. I agree. It did. I almost want to say that it didn't because it's... <laughs> because of the overriding angst. Exactly. And energy focused on that. But, but at the did. end of the day... It did. It yeah. did. This is a new realization for you? Yeah. And I had the same realization... Maybe five years ago when I gave up sugar the first time, mm-hmm. which is that I didn't – I, I re, one of the reasons I did it is I felt like it was too important to me. You have that feeling about something. Right. This it's, is my God. Exactly. It's just too important. You think, really? Is sugar your God? It sounds lame. 
But it kind of is. Of course it is. We went out to dinner uh, on Saturday night. Yeah. There was a dessert bar. Yes. <laughs> Did you go? No. Okay. I walked by it. And I, you thought about it. I strolled on by a couple of times. Walk on by. Yep. Gave it a little look or two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Is it changing how you feel about your dinner? Oh, Everything about it. Me too. Because I know that, you know, after dinner, I'm not going to have a little party. Right. So I feel like I am definitely enjoying food mm-hmm. more. Yeah. I agree. Okay. It's a weird thing. It is a very, it's a really weird so thing. So this is not even, this is not, not even week one of the of We one. haven't even made it through no. one week. How many times? I did this like multiple times over the weekend. I was like, okay, Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> Friday. I was counting the days. It was as, you know, I was like, you know. Making a mark on the wall. Right. Wall? That's where I am. That's how desperate it is. Oh, I had pizza last night, and I went for the Arnold Palmer, which I always do. Because <laughs> it's very good with pizza. Right, of course. But then you go. And then I was like, well, may some people, I'm re- reasoning with myself. I'm like, you know, some people during Lent, they don't fast on Sunday. That's exactly true. So maybe I could just, ha- and then I thought, you know, the fact that I'm trying to convince myself of this, I'm just going to out out rule it right so, rule it out is what i'm trying to say because you would call yourself a sellout yeah and then i was like if you have to convince yourself this much and come up with like a legal brief about why you should be allowed to do it mm-hmm. forget it right three Just days in it. three days in exactly giving something like up how pitiful life. are you very nice anyway coming up on today's program uh we have two really excellent guests hannah anderson in the five o'clock hour can self-help books really help Hmm. They are everywhere. They sure are. They Millions are sold every year, even everywhere. deeply within the Christian community. Yep. Yes. Um, also, what is popcorn brain? Mm-hmm. And do you have it? The answer is yes. <laughs> I do enjoy popcorn, yeah. but we'll, this is something totally right. different. We'll talk about that. And also, 525, does this make sense? And the question, why not pay teachers 100 grand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll go for that. Sure. If we, if we want good, smart kids, why don't we pay them more? Raise your taxes. That okay. and much more coming up on today's show. Greg Cluxton as well. Okay, so as we always do, though, we start the week off, the day off, by looking at the news, Kath. Without further, here's the top four at four. It's Monday. February 19th, 2024. Number one, Israeli War Cabinet member Benny Gantz said yesterday, John, that the Israeli Defense Forces would launch a ground offensive into the city of Rafah if Hamas does not return the remaining hostages by the holy month of Ramadan, which begins March 10th. The Israeli government has not officially laid out a timeline for the expansion of the war into Rafah. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. on Saturday threatened to veto an Algerian-proposed ceasefire agreement if it were to come up for a vote at the U.N., arguing instead that negotiations led by the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt would better achieve a sustained ceasefire and a hostage release. That's from today's dispatch. Number two, John. Prison authorities, get this, are claiming that Alexei Navalny, the late Russian opposition leader, died of sudden death syndrome. Oh. In the Siberian prison camp where he was serving a three-decade sentence. Now, I would say that whenever you're killed by your political opposition, I would call that sudden death syndrome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Horrible. On Friday, uh, our President Joe Biden pointed the finger at Russian ple- President Vladimir Putin, saying, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Quote, we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was a consequence of something that Putin and his thugs did. 
On Sunday, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said he would move with bipartisan support to label Russia a state sponsor of terror, a designation that comes with significant sanctions. That's also from today's dispatch. Number three. Adding to the anguish felt by the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's family, his mother and his team have reportedly been denied access to his body and told by investigators that the official probe into his death is being extended and it's unclear how long it will take. His wife, Yulia, who lives in exile outside Russia, accused the Russian authorities of, quote, lying miserably while waiting for the trace of another Novichok to disappear. And Novichok, of course, refers to the poison that was used by Russian security services in at least one, maybe two, previous politically motivated assassination attempts. Uh, Yulia Navalnya urged Russians to share not only the grief and endless pain that has enveloped and gripped us, quote, but also my rage, as she vowed to continue with her husband's mission to reveal Putin's alleged misdeeds and end his long range of power over Russia. But here's the sad news. The repression is everywhere, and the tributes to Navalny, along with dozens of others left across the nation, were quickly swept away. Hundreds of people who have dared to honor him publicly since he died have been arrested. Yep. People laid flowers down and arrested. That's from ABC News. And number four, much happier news. Yarmir Yager had his iconic number 68 retired and raised to the rafters by the Pittsburgh Penguins after a gulf of nearly 23 years away from the team. While it was happening, his sweet, sweet mother, Anna, was sobbing her eyes out. <laughs> it was the absolute best, one of the most remarkable nights of hockey ever in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And that is your top four at four. So the team comes out for their practice skate and they all come out wearing mullet wigs. Is It was hilarious. And there were so many mullets in the audience. <laughs> I love it. It was absolute. The crowd was filled with mullets. Oh. It was great. More than 30 of Yager's teammates were there. Mm. So, of course, we had Lemieux. We had Ron Francis. We had Ulf Samuelson. And this is just off the top of my head. Phil Bork, Jay Caulfield, Troy Loney, Loney Kevin Stevens, uh, Matthew Barnaby, Yuri Slager was there. Uh, I mean, it was incredible. J- Scotty Bowman was there. Cool. Uh, Craig Patrick I mean, it truly was, one of the greats. It was who it, you thought was, was going to play forever. He hasn't played in the NHL since 2017, and he retired d- deep into his 40s. Right? Yeah, well, he and he's still playing. Yeah, in in For NHL in the Czech Republic. Yeah, he hasn't played since 2017 in I the mean, NHL. What a machine! I mean, it was he looks terrific. It was such. I mean, I ate up that ceremony. Mm-hmm. It was so 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 good. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I bet AT and T Sports will yeah. will re air it. You're a Pens fan. It That's was cool. Just excellent. Okay, we'll take a quick break. To him. We do come back in just a few minutes. We go to the White House. Uh, we start off on Monday always with Greg Clarkston. He joins us from SRN News. Stick around. It's the ride home. Pittsburgh Christian Talk. Now to the White House, where Greg Clugston joins us. Greg Clugston is the SRN News White House correspondent. Greg, happy Monday to you. Hey there, guys. John Cathy, great to be here. How are things? Things are fine. Um, always happy. It's a, it's, a, it's a good sign for a Monday when uh, you, Greg, are here. And it kind <laughs> of like switches our attention to things that not just matter in the country, but matter in the world. So let's start with the death of Alexei Navalny, uh, the late yep. Russian opposition leader, um, passed away last week in prison while he was out for a walk. Authorities say this weekend that he died of, quote, sudden death syndrome. Uh, What's the uh, response of the White House to this type of labeling? 
Well, the White House, uh, the President Biden in particular, came right out and made a statement, uh, you know, last Friday, once just hours after we heard this news uh, about the death of Navalny. And he essentially said, look, uh, Putin is responsible. Um, he said that his death lies with Putin himself, the responsibility does, and that um, they, they essentially were not taking Russia at its word in, in terms of describing this kind of, you know, sudden death syndrome. I mean, one that's day, a laughable um, label. Yeah. One. Yeah. One day he, he's what, 47 years right. years old. You know, one day he's fine. The next day he goes for a walk and he's he's gone. Um, and 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 the reason that we can say that um, with any sort of, you know, uh, certainty is is a track record of dissidents and those who have been political opponents of Vladimir Putin over many, many years. There have been poisonings. There have been other suspicious deaths. In fact, uh, many people might forget that Navalny himself was poisoned um, and he was in Germany. He he uh, he came back uh, from that um, from that episode health wise. And then he chose to return to Russia because he felt strongly about making a political statement against uh, against Putin. And then, of course, he was promptly arrested and has been uh, had been since 2021 up until his death last week. Mm-hmm. Greg, let's talk about uh, former President Trump. He continues to cast a long shadow over where we are in the country uh, over the week. Uh, a huge civil judgment was uh, pushed against him, but he is set to go. President, former President Trump is to uh, the criminal trial begins next month. Please talk to us about this. Right. It's five weeks from today is the beginning of jury selection in this trial, March 25th. So the last week of of March is when this first criminal trial is set to begin in New York. And we had the judge last week announcing this is this is the hush money case. This is has to deal with with uh, payments that were made to Stormy Daniels uh, in an effort to conceal uh, an alleged past relationship. And that, of course, was all happening in the run-up to the 2016 election of Donald Trump. And so this had gone through um, the courts and uh, and all that. And so essentially what you had is the judge um, listening to uh, certain um, arguments from the Trump team. They were wanting a delay, if not an outright dismissal of the case. And the judge simply said he turned back both of those arguments. Now, the argument from the Trump team was, look, we're, we're going to have to, uh, you know, have our um, have our client, in this case, Donald Trump, in the courtroom instead of out on the campaign trail during the primary season and uh, throughout, you know, however long the uh, the trial may last. And it could last several weeks is what the uh, is what the court was indicating, possibly six weeks or so. So that would that would require Donald Trump to, to be in court when those uh, sessions um, are are taking place in in Manhattan. So it's a it's a falsifying you know business record account hush money however you want to describe it. But it's set to go, and it, it of course is historic in the sense that it's the first criminal trial ever for a former U.S. president. So we kind of leave the criminal realm, look at the civil realm. Uh, Trump's been ordered to pay $355 million in the fraud civil suit where he misrepresented his uh, his wealth in general. Uh, talk. I mean, these numbers are, are getting to be outrageous. I mean, he doesn't have limit. No one has limited funds. Sure. We don't know exactly how much money Donald Trump has. And of course, that's been one of the problems in some of these cases where they have right. been, um, you know, he's been accused of inflating the value of his assets uh, to win favorable um 
loans and, and other business investment dealings, that sort of thing. Uh, the first thing that we should note is Donald Trump and his legal team say they are going to be appealing this, uh, you know, which is no surprise whatsoever. But the idea that you've, you know, you had this $355 million verdict that has been up, essentially upheld by this judge now. And then um, on top of the $355 million, Kathy, you have, um, you have interest at an annual rate of 9%. And so that adds another almost $99 million. So we're looking at a total penalty of 453 plus million. I mean, we're, it's approaching half a billion dollars. Um, so you can understand why the Trump team obviously is wanting to uh, to appeal this. No um, and obviously there have been uh, reports for, for decades about, the, you know, the wealth of, of Donald Trump and his empire. Uh, and he has claimed to be a, uh, you know, a billionaire. But even for uh, someone who has billions of dollars in assets, this is a large chunk of change. It sure is. Say. Now, say what you will, Greg. And of course, there's a lot of talk about this, that these are, and the president has said this himself, comparing himself in many ways to Al Capone, right? To the 1920s, 1930s gangster, that uh, reactionary judges uh, have politicized this. This was a essentially a, what, what they're saying is a victimless crime. No one was harmed by this. Um, the uh, Washington Post, of all things, said the judgment was kind of like using a heat-seeking missile from someone who is jaywalking. Um, mm. There's a lot to be said about this, yeah? Absolutely. There there are some who, who think, uh, you know, they would believe that um, that Trump did falsify these records, you know, in this way, that kind of thing. But in terms of whether there was any sort of real damage um, other than him, you know, receiving some, you know, favorable treatment from banks and lenders and insurance companies and that kind of thing, there was no real victim in this case, uh, goes, you know, some of the arguments. And and therefore, um, they think that, you know, the uh, the kind of money that we're talking here in terms of the verdict and the penalty uh, really uh, is outsized to, you know, compared to typically how these cases have gone before and what past verdicts, you know, and what past penalty amounts have been, saying that this one is just so much larger than what we have seen in the past. And so if, if, if you know, that kind of track record can be uh, demonstrated in an appeals court level, for example, uh, that this is really an outlier of a case and that uh, it would suggest perhaps politicization, then maybe the, maybe there is a chance that there is, uh, you know, an outcome change here, um, maybe not in, in terms of the actual verdict, but in terms of the, fe- the penalty amount, maybe that mm-hmm. could be reduced. Mm-hmm. SRN News White House correspondent Greg Clugston joins us. You know, the thing that's that's so different trying to compare the Trump cases with other cases is the amount of public, uh, I don't know, standing that Mr. Trump has and the way he conducts himself, um, not just inside the courtroom, but also in social media, in the public in general. And so, yeah, there's definitely a difference in the amount of penalty that he's been uh, he's been given. But at the same time, it's almost like he asks for it because he's always inflating every issue, every uh, at every opportunity. And so, I I mean, I, I don't know even how you you arrive at something that's a fair punishment for him. You know, that's a really good point, Kathy, because when you look at his demeanor in the in all of these uh, cases that he is facing right now, 
he has been on the offensive and um, has been extremely disrespectful toward the judges, toward the staff, toward the prosecuting attorneys. Uh, you know, he called the he called the judge in this particular case crooked. I mean, he called the judge crooked. Um, and then you had the you had the judge come through with this verdict. And so in some cases, people would say that's not a surprise. Uh, he has called the attorney general in New York a lunatic. He has called Jack Smith, who's the special counsel uh, who's dealing with the federal indictments uh, on him in terms of election interference. He's called him an animal. Um, so that kind of you know reaction from Donald Trump uh, certainly gets the attention of the court, and you wonder how much it colors you know exactly the proceedings as as they go forward in terms of of how they're viewing him as you know someone involved in these cases. Mm-hmm. Greg, let's leave uh, former President Trump behind and talk about the current occupant of the White House, President Biden, and his team still reeling from the description of an elderly man with poor memory. I mean, uh, this was uh, a really pointed Mm -hmm. description of Joe Biden. And, of course, he was angry, but uh, I'm sure this is not going to go away anytime soon. It doesn't appear to be. In fact, there are any number of uh, news stories and opinion pieces that we have seen over the last few days and over the weekend, even this morning, about uh, what what Joe Biden and his campaign need to do um, to, you know, to move past this description or to change uh, you know, the the, uh, the 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 way people are viewing him. Um, obviously, he's 81 years old. That's not going to change. Um, but when uh, when the president goes out and speaks, um, is he delivering, um, you know, passionate speeches? Is he showing energy out on the campaign trail or at official White House events? And a lot of people say that he does not project that kind of strength and vitality and energy in his public appearances. Uh, and so whether there's going to be a, an effort to sort of retool that or 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 change his schedule in a way that may be, uh, you know, more inclined to, you know, show him in that light. We're going to have to wait and see. But there's a lot of hand wringing among a lot of Democrats right now. Uh, and even those uh, who are, you know, speaking anonymously, who uh, are, are part of the White House team or the Biden campaign team, who are wondering if uh, they're reacting fast enough before this idea really sets in with voters' minds. And I think it probably just has simply reinforced what a lot of American voters have been telling pollsters for the last year. And this is something we've talked about here every Monday, is that this uh, this question about age and fitness for office from a physical perspective uh, for someone in their early 80s and somebody who wants to remain in office until their mid-80s as the president of the United States, that's that's a real problem for people of all political stripes here in this country. Greg Clugston is with us, SRN News White House correspondent. Greg, our time's almost up. Last question for you. Uh, let's just talk about Ukraine aid. There's been a lot of difficult news, dispiriting news from the front lines there. Um, talk about how U.S. Congress people are responding. So this is interesting. You have the Senate last week passing a bipartisan uh, foreign aid package that would include money for Ukraine as well as for Israel and some other some other U.S. allies. And so Republicans are split on this. There were just a handful of Republicans who voted with most of the Democrats in the Senate to pass that and send it over to the House, which is led, of course, by the Republican Party. And the House Speaker there, Mike Johnson, has said, we're not going to move quickly on this. We're not going to be pressured on this. He is uh, one of the Republicans in the, you know, in the leadership in, in the House 
essentially aligned with Donald Trump in the view of not pushing forward with uh, aid to Ukraine right now. And we started off, Kathy, talking about Navalny and the Russia situation and Vladimir Putin. And it's all tied in with the with the uh, the Ukraine aid, because Ukraine continues to two years after the invasion by Russia uh, face Russian forces. And uh, they've been running short on artillery and things. So uh, it's very interesting to see how the Republican Party is um, is dealing and responding to this threat that's ongoing threat from Russia and, uh, you know, the activities and the, the actions of Vladimir Putin as well. Earlier today, the president said he, he finds it really shocking the way that a lot of Republicans have been walking away from NATO and walking away from the threat that Russia poses. So that remains a real uh, issue here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, thanks an awful lot. Always appreciate mm-hmm. you stopping by on a Monday and uh, setting us up for the week. There's a lot going on. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good week. And you as well. Greg Clugston, SRN News White House correspondent. More information about Greg and SRN News at wordfm.com. If you're a fan of visiting museums, you may have seen this or maybe done this yourself. But one of the fastest growing threats to museum collections may not be, as some members of the public think, climate protesters throwing soup or gluing their hands to prized works of art. But the new scourge is selfie takers backing into paintings and other objects and then marring, sometimes destroying, said works of art. Quote, it strikes me as something that's become a growing trend, says Robert Reed, who is the head of fine art and private clients at the Hissock Insurance Company, which insures major works of art around the world. We're not going to change the way we underwrite, but it's something that's becoming concerning for museums and other public spaces as well. Now, there have been several instances in the last few years of major works of art uh, that have been damaged or downright destroyed. Uh, The British Museum, uh, they are taking more stringent uh, measures, institutions including um, banning selfie sticks, mitigating the problem, Mm -hmm. although putting up barriers... Uh, guards around different works of art. It just seems to be the new thing where people less inclined to be interested in the artwork, but more about themselves, placing themselves in front of the artwork to show the world where they are. Which is really stupid. That's where we are. It's really stupid to take a selfie in front of a work of art. Well, it's no no more stupid than people taking pictures of their food. Well, maybe. That's true. But, so... I, of course, would be the first person to rail against th- th- that type of thing. However, I have to come clean and say that I've spent a lot of time in museums over the years. And once I got a phone, I noticed that I was really – I really wanted to take pics of – pieces of art that I really liked in particular. And I noticed that while I was doing this, I became – unaware of the people around me. Right. And especially when you're gathering around famous works of art, there are a lot of people Hordes there. Hordes and hordes, yeah. I, had, I was noticing I was stepping on people's feet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was kind of like backing into people or whatever. You have Holding up a phone makes you stupid to the people around you. And uh, when I was at the Met in New York uh, a couple years ago, that's when I noticed that I was being like a bad patron. And so it can happen to anybody. Sure. It's not just, you know stupid, you know, 16-year-olds that do this. No, it's everybody. Do you have a you, selfie stick? No. 
Do Would you? you? No. 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 That's no. like the ultimate expression. No. I don't. But you know what I mean about being, it makes you stupid to the yeah, people sure, around sure. you? Yeah. And, and you know, even if you like, you know, if you go through the Carnegie or the Westmoreland Museum, oftentimes you see like, you know, the gallery guards that to me, you kind of think, oh, that'd be so boring just standing there all day long. Now I believe heightened training and yeah. deeper awareness of people because... And not to say that they're priceless, but they are extremely valuable yes, and or just the beauty themselves. Right. And why, I remember maybe 10 years ago was the first time somebody told me to take my backpack off, that there were no backpacks allowed in a museum. Yeah, sure. And I was like, well, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. I can see why. Of course. People doing all kinds of yeah. things. Well, just this past week, though, uh, you know how Facebook does Facebook memories. I looked, a, a memory came up of <laughs> me with a selfie in front of the uh, in a big rubber ducky. Oh, the one that was down in the Allegheny River or yeah. at the point? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Now, of course, that was made for the selfie. Of course it was. Right? That's why it was there. And it, and it couldn't be damaged unless you, know, exactly. you were attacking it with exactly. you know, a stick or so something. That's, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. But people going into you know the Carnegie Museum or the Louvre or whatever museum you're going into and just being totally clueless. Listen, I'm an art lover, John. I'm an art lover, and I was clueless myself. Have you found yourself like Yes, when I was to... at the Met. Mm. I was stepping on people's mm. feet. I was doing... And all of a sudden, I thought, put your phone away yeah. and pay attention to the people around you. It's very easy to do. You get caught up in your own world. Yeah. Anyway, something else to just be aware of. That's, That's all. right. All right, we're taking a break. When we come back, what's popcorn brain? Do you have it? So sometimes in the evening, John, it'll be after dinner, and that's when I'm really bottoming out as far as energy level. Sure. And so I'll sit down on the sofa and I'll think, you know what? I have been looking like the last episode of this show that I have been watching is, is out, and I want to sit down and, pay, and watch it. Yeah. And I'll be ten minutes into it, and all of a sudden, I'll something will come to my mind, and I'll pick up my phone to look something up to Google something, and the next thing I know. This show that I've been looking forward to watching now is happening in front of me and I'm like doing something on Instagram. Yeah. And so then I have to hit pause. Go back. And go back and put my phone down. And I can't believe I do that. I think it's pretty common. I think it's it's sick. Do you, is that, hap that happens to you. Yeah, sure. You're, you know, the big screen. And I mean, I was talking to somebody here the other day. They're saying they're watching the big screen on the television. They also have their phone and their iPad in front of them. So three screens simultaneously juggling whatever it is, that thing that you're interested in. Okay. <laughs> that can't be good. Of course, it's horrible. It's horrible. Our ability to concentrate on one thing is gone. I mean, uh, we were talking about reading. Yes. The number of people who read seriously, especially kids, yeah. has greatly diminished yes, in this country has. because of said screens, multiple screens at one time. Okay. Have you heard the term popcorn brain? Uh, maybe while I was watching something and then forgot about it. <laughs> it refers to the tendency for our attention and focus to jump quickly from one thing to another, like popcorn kernels. Mm -hmm. um, that's Dan Glazer talking to Metro UK last week. He said popcorn brain isn't new. The term was coined back in 2011, but mental health experts are sharing new ways to combat it as our lives become more digital. So where do you notice that in your life? 
the same thing that you said. Okay. Right? Like yesterday. It was, it was Sunday afternoon. I had the hard copy of the newspaper in front of me, which I absolutely adore. I mean, for decades, that was kind of like in many ways the, like the high point of my week. Mm. A Sunday afternoon, alone, n- nothing on the TV, and just the paper in front of me. I loved it. Now I've got the paper, my phone, and the TV set. And oftentimes, I find that I give short shrift to the newspaper because I'm more interested in Mm. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or what's on the big screen, whether I'm watching Barry or a movie or whatnot. Right. So I'm vacillating. But all three suffer. Yeah. Listen to this. We're watching the uh, Yager, uh, you know, jersey raising ceremony last night on TV. And uh, it's... I'm watching it. My daughter, who's 22, is watching it, and her fiance. The three of us are watching it. And they're showing these absolutely terrific clips from the 90s, right? Um, they're showing clips from the early 2000s. And it was just, I mean, of course, one spectacular move by Yager after another. But my daughter says out loud to the two of us, to her mom and her fiance, I wish I would have been born earlier. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's it. I said, you know, in theological way, you were born at exactly the right time sure. because that's when God wanted you to be born. And she said, yeah, but I wish I was born earlier. And I said, why? Because we're looking at a bunch of like horrible clothing choices, like huge hair. I'm thinking she looking at that and thinking, I wish I could. She said, I wish I would have been I wish I would have gone from birth to 18 without ever having a phone. Yeah, because you watch those clips. Right. And everybody in the stands. They're watching the action on yep. the vice yep. on the ice, and they're not holding up their phones. That's exactly right. Which takes you out of the moment, and you see this again and again yep. and again. And now, of course, we'll never go back. So you're present for major events, and you're essentially taking your out yourself out of those yep. events by recording yes. them. And maybe you, you go back and watch those before, but it's still yep. not the same. Yep, it's ridiculous. Yep. Psychologist Danielle Haig told uh, Glamour UK last week that excessively scrolling and browsing through new new posts, alerts, engagements and advertisements triggers this little dopamine release that rewards your brain and then fuels the cycle. Over time, she says, this constant demand for attention and the rapid switching... Oh, hold on. Now my screen is speaking of rabbit mm-hmm. switching. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> yeah. Now my screen is frozen. Um, rabbit switching between those things is what causes your brain to develop this need to keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. So then that's the rise of ADHD. Yeah, Which it is, really is, for many people, self-inflicted ADHD. Right. So the average attention span on any screen before switching to something else decreased from two and a half minutes in 2004 to 75 seconds mm-hmm. in 2012 to 47 seconds now. Yeah. Now, 47 second attention span. Yeah. Well, I told you, I recently discovered, which I, I can't believe I didn't know about this before, the Facebook Reels, which are essentially Instagram. Yeah. Right. right? And, and so it's, it's baked into social media that the clips themselves are anywhere from 30 to 45 seconds long. That's over until, you, you know, you push forward, push forward. Oh, I'm interested in that. So we're we're sort of being raised now yes, on less and right. less attention by the media moguls themselves. And we gladly, I, gl- I look forward to it. 
Right. Believe me, I do it. Sure, of course, I know. But yeah. research is suggesting that our neural pathways in the brain are being rerouted or adapted yeah. to accommodate this type of multitasking, right? And rapid info processing. So that's going to come at the expense of being able to engage deeply and thoughtfully with content, which is over time going to impact your learning, your memory, mm-hmm. and your emotional regulation over time. Yeah. It can also affect and this is no surprise, how you interact with another human Mm -hmm. in the room, right? Um, It'll negatively impact your patience, your emotional well-being, and your productivity because you can't just sit down and do a task. You're just constantly going back and forth. And here's another thing that I think is really important, your potential for burnout. Right. So So you're going to burn out faster. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So he who is able to concentrate the longest, the most intense, will be the most successful. Yes. So here are some suggestions on getting out of the popcorn brain, you know. Mode. Exactly. Limit tech usage to certain times and undergo digital detoxes to let your brain rest and recharge. I think it would be a good idea for me to just decide that like at certain o'clock, I'm you not going to look at my phone again. Right. I kind of like that... the, we talked about at the top of the show. You and I independently have decided to give up sugar. Right. So it's an intentionality of I'm doing this yes. because it's the necessary thing. Yeah. So I'm think, sacrificing. I, I think that would help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, participate in screen-free activities like meditating. I would put prayer in there. Prayer. Enjoying nature, exercising, reading, and creating art. Right. I mean, you did this when the kids were little, right? We did, and, and this is so innocent because... They weren't doing screens like they do now. We did, you know, free screen free yes, days. Yes, screen free Wednesday you used to do. Right. Yes. Where we'd sit around and play games or we'd read, you know, and of course it was delightful. Yep. And our kids, like your kids, our kids were both deep readers. Mm-hmm. They read multiple books right. throughout the year. People don't do that anymore. Yeah, I know. So there's an intentionality of screen free days. Yeah. Okay, number three, make sure to pause to focus on a single task. To retrain your brain not to multitask all the time. Mm-hmm. So really pay attention to something. So people, you know, you kind of think people like um, in the trades, like your plumber. Yeah, like a, or a carpenter, they're, a metal worker. They're not looking at screens. Right, because you couldn't look at no, a screen. Right? You're, you know, you're hammering something or you're installing something. You're, you're not doing that. How many people did we meet in, uh, on Friday night? We met people in the HVAC industry. Yeah, a lot of people right? actually. Yeah. I mean- are they watching screens while no, they're doing right. that? No, they're, they're involved in one thing only. It's it's a different type of person like us or uh, mm-hmm. who are doing multiple things at one time on different screens. Right. Lastly, periodically delete apps to try to gain or regain control over your social media usage. It's kind of funny. I mean, so now I'm looking at I'm, – I'm downloading apps that increase your um, concentration levels. Really? That's Which is a, ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Right. But tell me about that. Well, you know, there, there, there's some, what, what's it called? Elevate or something. It came up as an ad. Oh, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm watching a video about, oh, I should, I should be doing this. Yeah. So I downloaded the app and I'm thinking, well, John, you already know this. Right. You know, I'm watching like a white dot glow for 30 seconds. Well, I should just turn off the dang phone. And focus on something else. Like, with, without the white dot and paying somebody two bucks a month or five yeah. bucks a month or whatever. Listen, though, whatever it takes to kind of get back to some level of attention. Your daughter's right because she she sees it. She knows it. She inherently knows it. 
and she sees people not mm-hmm. that long ago. How, many, how long has it been? 15 years? Yeah. Not that long ago. We were healthier, more involved, engaged with each other and ourselves and the world around us, intentional, as opposed to just frittering away popcorn after popcorn time. On this date, February 19th, 1945, the Battle of Iwo Jima began. And this was one of the seminal and perhaps one of the last truly great battles of World War II. Iwo Jima was a small island, is a small island, a few hundred miles away from Japan. And uh, the island was really significant in World War II because the Japanese had radar and they had a lot of artillery on that island. So as Allied forces were pushing into, as the war was progressing into Japan, and with the radar, the Japanese had a 200-mile heads up that a lot of B-29s or B-52s were headed over that island and into Japan. And so the Americans made a a really hard drive to say, we are going to eradicate all Japanese from Iwo Jima. Now, Iwo Jima, of course, like a lot of islands in Japan, in the South Pacific, mainly occupied, of course, by people living uh, agricultural lives. And before the battle happened, the Japanese army came in and they pulled all Japanese citizens, all Iwo Jima residents off the island. And then they set up shop and the Japanese at their peak had some 20,000 soldiers. Now, when the battle began, and this was all United States Marines, some 60,000 United States Marines flooded the island. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea the number was that high. And the battle began. Now, of course, deep casualties on all sides. Uh, The Japanese army uh, essentially on that island over many, many days was wiped out. And, of course, American casualties off the charts as well. Thousands and thousands of U.S. The only time, I believe, in World War II that casualties on the American side were greater than on the enemy side. Hmm. Having said that, the iconic image of the flag being raised, right, those six military members pushing that flag up on that mound, Mm -hmm. iconic. I mean, that was probably perhaps, if not the greatest, one of the greatest images of World War II. That was on Iwo Jima. When Iwo Jima fell... uh, some six days later, but it took more than five weeks to clear everyone, all the enemy off that island. And some of them just dug in and just refused to die. Whenever that happened, it made the way possible for American forces, air forces, to go into Japan and, and start truly heavy bombardment. Mm. So you think about all those Marines, all those casualties, what happened on Iwo Jima. So this day, a massive day in American, especially World War II history. We've talked so many times, John, about how capable we would be now of sacrificing the things that people sacrificed, the everyday civilian sacrificed in World War II. We can't fathom what that generation did. We, we really can't. I was, I was telling you that I saw a TV show um, that took place during World War II, and it took place in Britain, and uh, it was Thanksgiving. And so they had a special, um, uh, like a lottery, and people were registering for chances <laughs> to get an onion, 
It was a big onion, like maybe like a, like grapefruit size onion. Mm, a prize. A, that was the prize for the lottery because nobody had onions. Yeah. Because everything people grew, whether it was in their own victory garden or whether it was for in mass agriculture, was going to support the war effort. Right. So people just sacrificed. They said, okay, well, I'm going to grow all my onions, but I'm going to give them away. Mm-hmm. I think I don't, I just don't think we have that. We don't. There's no doubt about that. If and when a calamity like that scale, World War III, would happen again, of course, the fighting would be totally different. It would be. Right? Um, This was hand-to-hand, basically. Iwo Jima was. We don't have the mental capacity, the toughness, and the worldview and love of country to sacrifice Mm -hmm. all things. I don't don't think people would would see it as worth it. God bless America. To those men and women. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon, and uh, happy President's Day to you, if no one's uh, said that to you yet. No one has said that. Really? It's, it was late in the day Jimmy for it to John. happen. It's a federal holiday, right? It is a federal holiday. Yeah. It's a bank holiday as well. Okay. Right? So, no mail. Um, We're celebrating Washington and, Je- and Lincoln. See, I wasn't even sure. We are. I was, and Jefferson wasn't a president. Actually, so if it's president, it's a weird holiday. It this is. This is from Scripps News. President's Day, or Washington's birthday, as it's officially known, is a peculiar little holiday, right? Uh, you don't see President's Day parades or President's Day fireworks. You really don't see much of anything outside of President's Day sales, right? But you used to. Uh, there used to be uh, all sorts of parades. Washington's birthday. Washington's birthday, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, he signed a bill officially recognizing the holiday into law, but it had already been uh, observed unofficially since George Washington's death in 1799. At the time, Washington's birthday was observed on, well, Washington's birthday, which is February the 22nd instead of on the third Monday of February. Now, the reason for the switch Another president, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, signed the Uniform Holiday Bill in 1968, which moved Washington's birthday along with Memorial Day and Veterans Day. The bill aimed to give federal employees at least five three-day weekends a year. Okay. But it also created the possibility that we'd be celebrating Washington's birthday as much as seven days before his actual birthday. And that may have opened the doors to presidents, plural day, with other February birthday presidents like Abraham Lincoln edging in on Washington's turf. In fact, this year, Washington's birthday actually fell closer to Lincoln's on February the 12th than his own birthday, the 22nd. Um, Lincoln's birthday is actually its own holiday in some states. Did you not know that? As for why the holidays associated with cars and mattress sales... Well, it goes back and to... And carpeting, let me say. Mm-hmm, uh, and carpeting. It goes back to bicycles, of all things. Uh, the Atlantic, the magazine The Atlantic, traces the phenomenon back to the bicycle craze days of the late 1800s when the holiday was established when companies started to sell bicycles. 
and make a holiday event on Washington's birthday. And that's when they were going to sell bicycles? Yep, which later gave that's way so random. to motorcycles, car sales, carpeting, mattresses. And we ended up with mattresses? Mm-hmm. So, of course, no matter how you celebrate or choose to celebrate President's Day or not, or Washington's birthday, just know that there's no wrong way officially because there's no right way. That's very weird. Mm -hmm. That's such a strange. I thought that we had President's Day because they were trying to, <laughs> to honor both Washington and Lincoln. And it, and so that day was halfway between their birthdays. Well. Like it was like the median. Close, but not no, really. Not no, really. Mm -hmm. no. not really. That's not it. No, because the federal That's government kind of got dumb. involved. Very much dumb. Because LBJ wanted to do right by federal employees. Right. I like five, the long weekends. weekends. I'm glad for Memorial Who Day, doesn't? of course. Sure. What was the other one that he did? Memorial Day? There's five uh, of them. President's Day? Labor yeah. Day? Yeah. I'm not sure. Arbor Day? No, Arbor Day? I, I, no. no. I don't know. Veterans five. Day? Veterans Day is usually a Tuesday. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, My, not, or it's not. It's a Tuesday and not a Monday, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, that didn't know. work. My kid works for a bank. He gets 12 bank holidays a year, which is excellent if you work in a bank, right? Can we have some connection I mean, well, with the bank? We get, I think, I, think they get, I think they get five more or so than like the regular person. The average person. Right. We get like, you know, 4th of July and, you know, but they get a lot more. Are you saying that meant with an envious tone to your voice? A little bit. Okay. That's all. I want to bring our producer, Lexi Merritt, into mm -hmm. the conversation. First off, Lexi, you did a lot to make uh, the Friday celebration on the Gateway Clipper a really fun night for everybody. So we want to thank you for that. Oh, thanks. I also want to uh, bring up the strange fruit that you brought into the uh, station last week because we didn't have, <laughs> have a chance to mention it. So Lexi, uh, in addition, has given up sugar yeah. uh, for... Uh, I was going to say for Valentine's Day. No, President's for Lent, not for, for President's, President's Day. Day yeah. <laughs> and none of the three of us discussed this with each other. How weird we, is that? It, that's very weird. What does that even mean? That's very, maybe we all have the same problem. I think we do. I've uh, eaten too many sweets. Yeah. So you decided that you were going to go into the grocery store, Lexi, and just like buy new produce? Yeah, I just wanted fruit because if I'm not going to eat, you know, refined sugar, at least I can get some nutrients into it by eating like blueberries and sweet uh, tasting. Yeah, and some fruits. Like I brought like an orange with me today. Um but I was just shopping at the local Giant Eagle and I found these things called um gooseberries. And they are probably the weirdest little fruit I've ever had in my life. I don't ever want to do that again. I don't think I want to either. No. And and when I think no. of gooseberries, there's something that maybe it's uh, mentioned in a song or it takes me back to colonial America. Is it gooseberry pie? Yes, I think there's some something about gooseberry pie. Anyway, it instantly made me think of like the founding fathers, mm -hmm. Betsy yeah. Ross, right. you know that sort of thing. Um, so I was excited to try one, but I was initially put off. By the fact that they look like yellow grape tomatoes. Yeah. Yes. Little tidy tomatoes. And I hate to say it, but they also kind of taste like little golden grape tomatoes. Like, they just don't taste all that good. Mm, no. no, they don't. And then, at the like, so you, you, you bite into it and you think tomato. Oh. And then by the end, you're thinking weird. Car floor mat. <laughs> I was thinking weird fruit mm -hmm. yeah. like weird it's an explosion though isn't like it? like an it is it's like an old uh raisin or something it kind of mm -hmm. tastes yeah. like uh, in someone's couch right so 
Did you finish the carton, Lex? No, I no, did not. No. I I kept eating them because I didn't want to waste them. And then uh, I don't know what happened, but they went bad, so I had to toss oh, them. Oh, they went bad. Yeah, it's too bad. Okay. I don't think we're going to go back to the gooseberries. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think I will. No, but thank you for, for stretching our, uh, our horizons, Lexi. Of Ever course. so gently. That's what I'm trying to do all the time. Mm-hmm. We'll take a quick break. When we do come back, we're going to talk about, of all things... Self-help books. I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show. Can self-help books really help? That's next in the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. Being next to the youngest of seven kids, I garnered a lot of my early reading from my brothers and sisters. And I remember, weirdly, I don't know why or how, One of my sisters, way back, I don't know, in like 1970, was reading a book called I'm Okay, Mm -hmm. You're You're Okay. okay. And of course, I was maybe, you know, I was like 11 or something like that and picked it up and I thought, well, of course I'm okay until I read the book. (laughs) And then I realized quickly, oh, I guess I'm not that okay. That's my first recollection of what's known as self-help books. Well, Hannah Anderson is with us. She wrote a fascinating piece in Christianity Today, Can Self-Help Books Really Help? Hannah Anderson is an author. She lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Her latest book is called Life Under the Sun, Consider the Wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Hannah, welcome to the show. Great to be with you all again. So, Hannah, I grew up maybe 10 years after John, and I had a similar... uh, First of all, I'm okay, you're okay, was floating around my house, too. Okay, so your mom read it. Yeah, my mom read it, and also uh, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, right, was the thing. And there was something about those books that from from my youngest days... made me uncomfortable and I couldn't quite put a finger on it um, until I was older but I think that it's it's this myopic type of thing where I need to like I'm okay Uh, I just need to focus on myself a little bit and it just seemed like that was kind of working in opposition to the Christian teachings I was getting at the same time now, also, they were written for somebody who was way older than me. Of course. So it's not like I could make any sense of it. And it was way before I understood the need for actually focusing on myself and figuring out what the heck was wrong with me um, and, and asking for help. But I, I think early on, I just felt like they were oppositional. Do you, Hannah, feel like they are? Well, you know, that is actually the question I was trying to figure out in my research is whether this genre of self-help, which it's so expansive. I mean, there are so many iterations of it, whether it's getting your finances in order or figuring out your particular psychological makeup or you know, scheduling your life better. There's so many iterations of this self-help genre. And I was curious of whether this was really consistent with a Christian view of personal transformation, growth, all of those questions. And one of the reasons I um, had that question is because the Bible has some kind of wisdom books within it that if you just look at them at first glance, might kind of feel like they're self-help, you know, if you think of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. So that was the question that really got me into research, is what should our relationship be to this genre? Um, can we read them? Do they help? And if we bring them into our lives, what should we expect from them? So then this question of who we are as 
people, as human beings, and I guess in some ways, what is our greatest potential? This goes back, I mean, and you talk about this, Hannah, to ancient Egypt. Please tell us about the earliest first self-help book. Yes, yeah, so there's this genre has captivated human beings from the earliest civilization. Um, in the more ancient civilizations, whether it was ancient Egypt, um, you know, Greece or Rome, there was this genre of literature that was aimed toward future leaders. So, you know, young men who were maybe coming up in the court or would who be who would be government officials, and it was aimed toward preparing them. Um, to become the people who could lead in communities. And over time, I think we see some of that in the biblical wisdom literature. You know, Solomon is passing down mm-hmm. um, wisdom, wisdom to his right. and, and so there's this idea that it's almost for the upper class. Well, we don't necessarily live that way anymore. And, and in modern times, we're all kind of exercising a level of authority that's different in more ancient spaces. And so now... It's almost as if we're all trying to live into the lives and responsibilities um, that we have within our own spaces. So it's become much more democratic. Um, the the genre is everywhere, and it's very tailored. To your point, um, Kathy, sometimes it, it does feel like it's a little bit individualistic because when you approach the genre, it, you can find the one that you want that particularly mm-hmm. you know hits home to your particular needs. It may not be what your neighbor thinks you need to grow in, but it might be what you feel like you need to grow in. So there is a long history of kind of developmental literature or personally improvement improvement literature. I think the title, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, was more palatable to me because I thought, well, of I course, that. I, I want to be an effective person. Right. Right. I mean, what's what's the, so that that seemed a lot less. um a lot less narcissistic maybe than I'm okay, you're okay in its title. And so reading that, that was probably in the eighties, I think um, that was, it was like, it was like a new generation's uh, version of what had come before. Um, So talk about how these type of self-help books have gone through an evolution of their own over time. Yes, and I think one of the more interesting pieces for me as I did my research is I got to speak with um, folks who understood literature, who understood um, you know, personal transformation from a ministry standpoint. And one of the things that Karen Swallow Pryor pointed out to me, she is a scholar within um, the, the, the realm of kind of evangelical imagination, the development of Christian resources and literature. And she pointed out that as we... Um, came into this time of more personal understanding of personal sanctification. We all, it also came with this sense that we need to take that on for ourselves. It's moving out of a time maybe where you just trusted the church to do that for you. You know, you just do your penance, do these things and everything will be okay. And so there was a point where it shifted more toward personal responsibility. Um, about the same time that folks became more aware of the need for personal conversion and an understanding of a personal relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. And so there is this parallel movement. But now today, even a couple hundred years removed from those initial first self-developmental, like Christian developmental literature, the line is very fuzzy between whether something is secular self-help 
or whether it's Christian self-help. Mm-hmm. And that was something that really came forward in my literature that as Christians are engaging with this genre, we're kind of moving across the line very easily, like between secular self-help, Christian self-help, and authors are as well. They're kind of operating in two orbits, which um, really just hit home the question I had to begin with is how should a Christian relate to this genre? Right. I was talking to a, a friend yesterday who's in recovery, and he said way back in the 80s, he was just starting out on his road to recovery, and uh, he was watching late-night television, and of course he saw who? Tony Robbins. And, you yeah. know, Tony Robbins, ubiquitous for a big period of time. Uh, Cybernetics? As, I don't know what it's called, right? But it was he was he was a massive self-help yeah. guru, right? And so this guy was not a believer, but he said he, in his despair, he reached out to a Tony Robbins thing, went to a seminar. He then found himself attending a Joel Osteen church, which, you know, kind of you see how one thing leads to another. And so that question of what it is to be a believer, whatever that stripe of believer is, and, and, and you talk about this, uh, about, you know, whether it's Stephen Covey or Norman Vincent Peale, they all sort of follow along a, a, a thread here, Hannah. But of course, we sort of forego many times in our hunger to be better people. We, we sort of forego the truth and the wisdom of what it is to be a believer. The, the Bible is many ways is enough or, or is it? You know, that is such a good way of putting it, John, because I think the foregoing of a Christian approach to self-help is the question here. It's not about whether we read books that are helpful to identifying areas of needed growth or sanctification. Um, those, Those kinds of books have always been written. The question is, how would we engage in them in a way that's distinct from maybe a secular approach? And I think uh, one of the points that came forward in my research with speaking with pastors and other church leaders was how Christians understand the self. It's not just a question of making ourselves better. It is that we understand the self to be turned in on ourselves, to be fundamentally in need of transformation. It's not just renovation, right? It's not just improvement. We need transformation. And so when you come to the scripture, it is initially looks like here are ways to, um, you know, move more toward Christ likeness, but they always go through Christ. They don't bypass that route. And I think maybe that's one difference as Christians engage with this is to understand that we are people in need of transformation. um, And that's a much bigger endeavor than a lot of self-help books are trying to attempt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And that's probably a more specific, a a, a more accurate assessment of what it is that was kind of bothering me as I was growing up. Or maybe bothering me is is probably an exaggeration. It was more like a tension that I was noticing between the two. You mentioned in your article uh, in CT that uh, Jen Wilkin, who has been an advocate for biblical literacy among just regular people for a long time, um, she warns, you say, against reading the scripture as a project project in self-improvement. She says, quote, it's true that the Bible changes us, but it may not do so in the time frame we would demand. Many have come to expect that the Bible exists to make them feel better in bite-sized servings, often in 10 minutes or less. But the Bible is not meant to be cherry-picked for a quick emotional fix. Yeah, the Bible's not TikTok. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> One of the interesting things about this genre is it is manifesting online. And the more that um, we have this kind of online space, everything's getting reduced to these bite-sized, do this and you'll have this instant change. And what the Bible is attempting to do, and even the wisdom literature, it is transformation, but it's an organic change that the word of God would, would come in and change us from the inside out. It's not just adopting new habits or new practices. It's that the, the word of Christ would dwell in you richly and that you would become an entirely different person, that the self that is being improved would be a different self. It would be a transformed self. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Hannah Anderson. Her uh, article in Christianity Today is fascinating. Can self-help books really help? Hannah is uh, author of several books. Her latest is called Life Under the Sun, Consider the Wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Hannah, I- I'm curious. I mean, the the work is so beautiful here. It's so deep. Obviously, you've done uh, yeoman's work here. But you talk about uh, Sharon Hottie Miller, uh, Glennon Doyle, any number of Christian authors. In your research here, did you delve into and did you read uh, some of these self-help books for yourself? Uh, what was your assessment of modern self-help writers? Did you find self-help within them? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, did narrow my focus a little bit more to people that are working on that edge of Christian self-help or have some sort of religious angle or spiritual angle. Um, So I didn't really consider as much things like um, efficiency or management models or things that would be more improvement of habits. I was looking more at the the transformation um, angle. And I have read several of these books and I'm aware of um, the authors for a long time because I write in a similar space because I write discipleship literature. And that's where some of the overlap for Christians becomes confusing, I think, is what is discipleship and what is self-improvement? And when it came down to it, I think one of the key differences, as we've talked already, is are we targeting transformation or are we just kind of targeting adopting new habits? Also, and this is pretty key, is this happening in isolation or is it happening in community, this transformation that we're seeking? And and one of the things I think that is distinctly Christian about an approach to um, improvement or transformation or sanctification is that the scripture tells us it's going to happen with other people. It's going to happen in community within the body of Christ. And the interesting thing about the way we engage self-help is it's very siloed. It's me in this book. It's me in this guru. It's me in this channel. And that is not possible is the the conclusion I came to that there's a self-limiting factor here that because God has made us to be in community, um, we won't be changed and transformed if we're doing it in isolation, if we're just trying to improve ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then last word from you, um, can you give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to current self-help? There is a way to benefit from self-help but it will always have to be in community and through the lens of scripture and Christ. So it's more like um, do the meat and spit out the bones. Yeah. That's good. Okay. That's really helpful. Hannah Anderson's been with us. She's uh, an author. Her latest book being Life Under the Sun. It considers the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Hannah, always so good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back. Good to catch up with you all. 
does this make sense? Does what make sense? Vicks VapoRub. Now, I say that with a little bit of trepidation because I feel like maybe I mentioned that before on Does This Make Sense? Because it's such an obvious one. I feel like I definitely should have brought it up before. Uh, so, but I ask you now, either way, does Vicks VapoRub make sense? It scares me because my father used to eat it. Right. It scares you. Yeah. So when I mm-hmm. smell Vicks VapoRub, I mm-hmm. think of my father taking a spoonful. Mm-hmm. Which, which is which is clearly prohibited on the label. I, what? What? So as a kid, you know, like in having a chest cold and whatnot, and your mom would put that on yep. your chest. Yes. Great comfort. Right, the smell. Like whenever that came on you, you were like, "I'm officially sick, and I'm going to be okay." And I'm being cared for. Yep. So it, the, in that sense, it makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Now, is that still a thing? Are people still using it? Well, I sleep with it next to me. What? I keep it in my bedside table what? at all times what? because it makes so much sense. It will cure what ails you what that's how i look at it and perhaps it's from my grandmother she if i was sick would make (laughs) and this is like at the age of five she would make me eat a teaspoon of it which as i said clearly prohibited on label and then a shot of whiskey (laughs) (laughs) that'll grow hair in your chest which is one of the worst taste combos you can imagine a shot of whiskey yep Mm -hmm. As as a five year old. All right. Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense, right. but the Vicks VapoRub does. All right. I say it makes sense. All right. Does this make sense? Vegan chili. Oh. My wife spent yesterday making a massive, and I mean a massive, gigantic pot. Okay, so that's of chili. A, that's a step beyond vegetarian chili because well, there's no cheese in it. She made a second smaller pot for friends of vegan chili. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's a tough one, isn't well, it? Well, it's not. I mean, vegetarian chili, I think, is okay. Yeah. If you, you it takes a lot of effort, but mm. you can make it delicious yeah. without meat. But without do you really cheese, want it? The, uh, vegan meat? chili, absolutely not. I'm sorry. I'm just saying no. I don't want. I want to honor your wife's sacrifice, but I'm also going to say no to but it. But if you're a vegan, hey, you still get the chili, right? Well, the okay. beans and the sauce and but all. But I'm that. not a vegan, and I'm the one you're asking. Does it make sense? No. I'm sorry. I think it does. Okay. You're just trying to be nice. Well. <laughs> There's a, an article in today's paper. The headline is, Why Not Pay Teachers $100,000 a Year? And, of course, if your child, if you have a child, whether it's in public school or private school, then you see what a teacher does. And how deeply we need good teachers. Yeah. But the, the, the way that things are stacked against teachers is their salaries, more often than not, are not commiserate with the workforce of today. Teacher unions notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. A lot of teachers are not part of the teacher union. And so they right. are barely scraping by. And then, of course... School districts under the gun as far as budgets, and then the teachers are bringing in their own money for their own supplies and whatnot. It is a thankless profession made worse only by the pandemic. Ugh. 
Isn't that the truth? So teachers at $100,000 a year, uh, listen, I'm not trying to drag school districts into more debt, but to think about what goes on in the classroom, especially with the culture wars today mm-hmm. and the lack of skills that, you know, look at your test scores in the, from the pandemic, we need good teachers in the classroom. So we're willing to pay for other people in professions to make a good dollar because of the necessity of the work that they do, that they provide for us. Right. To raise your children, to teach your children well, why shouldn't we pay teachers $100,000 a year? Well, I'm not sure what the mechanism would be to do that other than to raise property taxes Which is by, horrible. by a considerable degree. Exactly. But more, more and more kids are not attending... I mean, they're closing schools left and right. The right. city of Pittsburgh is closing schools. Right? right? Look at school attendance. We're shrinking as far as birth rates. Far kids, far fewer kids are attending school. Right. So there's far well, teachers yeah, employed. I, I went on a trip uh, before COVID, John, down to Houston. And um, I was with an organization that does uh, in-school intervention yeah. with at-risk kids. And... Uh, this uh, particular school that I spent the day at is um, in an underserved area of Houston, and it's a large school. I mean, there are probably over maybe a couple hundred kids per grade. So it's a big school, um, and there are a lot of teaching staff, um, a lot of kids, and very intentional discipline with the uh, population of students. So overall, I mean, I spent a whole day there. I was in all sorts of different classes, academic classes. I went to gym. I went to art. I did all sorts. The kids were incredibly well-behaved. And if you weren't, you were out of the classroom. So very good, uh, a really good feeling of the school. Kids uh, overall very positive. But here's the thing I noticed (coughs) is that kids come in on the bus and they get breakfast uh, in the cafeteria. Then the day starts. They do their thing. Then they get lunch. And then after school is over, the kids come back to the cafeteria and they break up into groups and they have uh, like a, a some teacher or volunteer that helps them with their homework. And then they get uh, uh, some some of them get a dinner to take home in a bag wow, in their backpack. Wow, really? Okay. And what I didn't see but heard about later from some of the administration is throughout the day, the teachers give whatever meds are necessary to the kids. So in that instance, and the teachers are doing such a terrific job, but the teachers are being parents and teachers both. Nonstop. Nonstop. Every day. From 7A until 4.30 or 5 or later. Every day. And so what's happening is you're – Raising a generation of parents who don't have to parent because the teachers are parenting. Now, the teachers didn't start doing that. The reason that they're intervening in the lives of these kids is because the parents were negligent. So, How so? How do you well, mean? Well, parents weren't giving their kids meds. Kids were coming to school hungry. Kids didn't have anybody to help them with their homework. And so over time, the school stepped in to tr- because they loved the kids. See kids falling behind. And that's what you want to do, right? You, that you want to step in. But at that the, shouldn't be a school district's job. At the job. same time, 
Should that be a teacher's job? No. But it is. It is a teacher's job there. So I think across the country, in a lot of underserved areas, that's what's happening, is we've got teachers that are functioning at an incredibly high level, in addition to having to fulfill state standards and whatever their academic discipline is or you know whatever their ancillary discipline is, like music or library or art or gym or whatever. They're also doing a lot of things that historically parents have had exclusive responsibility for. Right. So- yeah, those those teachers that I was with that day, they definitely deserve $100,000 because they're keeping those kids alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a generation alive. They really are. Okay, so... But I don't know if that's the right answer. Nobody knows if that's the right answer because the reason that it's happening is because parents were completely blowing it as far as taking care of their kids. Well, if anything that the pandemic taught us was, if you want to pay someone a living wage... The government finds a way to do that, right? I mean, the government printed money right. like it was monopoly money right. during the pandemic. So if you cared about your kids, and there's still pandemic money out there, which, of course, governments are still using for any number of things. And which a lot of people never used. Right. Or it found its way yes. into nefarious means. Exactly. The num- and people use, but not for education. Right. I don't know. Okay. So unions are an easy target. People complain about the unions, right? Oh, I mean, the teachers are doing nothing and they're making X. Now, like you, there are teachers in my family. So I understand the hardship and the sacrifice. I mean, heck, there are people in my family who've got a bachelor's degree. Then they went back and got a master's degree. And so those student loans are going out there. Teachers say, you know, I I went into teaching because I love children and I want to be an educator, but I don't want to scrape by. Right. And that's more often the problem than not, right? Mm -hmm. The teachers are just scraping by. by. And so, of course, after a few years, five years at the most, I mean, you know, or whatever, then the teachers flush out and they go into corporate America. Mm -hmm. Also, and this is particularly for us and for our our audience, when you think about private Christian schools, they pay a fraction. A fraction of of what a public school teacher would get. And then you've got teachers, you know, with master's degrees in private Christian schools who are teaching your kids, and they're making $35,000, $40,000 a year. How can that even be? Yeah. And of course, you know what it is. Because how else is that going to happen? There's no, a a private school tuition of 100K for a teacher is absolutely, completely, totally unrealistic. But a livable wage? Because, Because the tuition required would put most families out of the pool. You know, both you and I have had kids yeah, in private Christian schools. it would never schools. work. It's expensive to, from the get-go, right. of course. But you want to do that, especially when the kids are younger, to really cement them in around that, right. in that Christian worldview. Right. It was invaluable. Yeah, but there's no way that your family or my family could have afforded to send our kids there if we, we were paying struggled. each one of the teachers 100 k. No, of course, even as it was. We, right, there's we no mechanism for that. struggled so hard. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, less kids are in school, birth rates are declining, this country is in turmoil. Mm-hmm. You know that is. You look at reading scores or math scores. We have fallen so far behind, you know, yep. the established world order. Mm-hmm. So what what's the solution here? Well, I I I don't know what the solution is, but I but Raise part of it part of it has to be some intervention with early parenting. It has to be I just I feel like asking teachers what we're doing now is we're asking teachers to fix whatever ails the kid. 
and whatever ails the community. It's not fair, but that's what we're asking teachers to do. Right. So we're saying, oh, scores are really low. Well, we have to introduce higher standards. So teachers have to keep up with the standards and teachers have to make sure that kids are are prepared Um, or, you know, kids are falling behind health wise. Well, we need to make sure that we have a government program that gives them breakfast, lunch and dinner and kids don't have. You know what I mean? And so it's all well intentioned. But the end result is that we've got people who aren't capable of having to be parents because they don't have to be. Listen. First through eighth grade, I was taught by the nuns, the N-U-N-S. I can't imagine in my wildest dreams, Sister Pancratius <laughs> giving me my meds, whatever that might have been, let alone giving me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Seriously. I mean, but, John, that's the case for millions, I can't, tens of millions of students in this country. That is what it is. That's what school is. So I, I just feel like if we want to make any dent in like looking either at the salary structure or the day-to-day responsibilities of a teacher, it has to start with equipping people to be parents. So what, what does it look like in other countries, right? I mean, if we're so far behind, yeah, and, you know, know, you can see these numbers in black and white. I mean, they're easily, you can pull them up in a second on your phone. And that's part of the problem. You can pull them up and you see other countries are doing a better job at this. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be America, the gold standard. Right, I know. Right. And again, here's the phrase. If you can put a man on the moon, why can't you educate your kids? That's the problem. Yeah. The model is there. The systems are in place. But why can't we well, rise to Because that? I think part of it is a moral element and people don't want to hear it. You know, so if we're talking about parents learning how to be parents, it's hard to be a parent. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I had a very, very hard time adjusting I to I get being what you're saying, parent. but I can't necessarily point the finger at, you know, parents exclusively. Oh, I can. Yeah. No, I think I think a large problem. You think it's, the large problem is absentee parenthood? Yes. Yeah. And Jeez, we're asking know, and we're Kat. asking teachers to step into that open space. Listen, I found it very, very, very challenging to become a parent. And I had parents that were good models for me. Yeah. Right. I still found it very challenging. I feel like maybe some federal money or effort that went into helping communities to help one another parent, to teach young people how to parent, because I, I don't think that's something that just naturally comes to people. I don't know. I don't know. The idea of throwing more money at another problem. I don't think we're, we well, throw we're, money left and yeah, right. Know, Does it solve problems? Well, but paying teachers $100,000 a year is not going to solve the problem because even at a higher rate, you're going to have people leaving that uh, profession as it is now because they cannot be everything to a kid. I was really lucky. I grew up on a lake. And lake life is really great life. I just have to say it. That sort of just maybe sort of gives me a key into why you're obsessed with a Loch Ness monster. Yeah, exactly. Right? I spent. I've never lived in a place that didn't have water. Oh man! I was either here, you know, most of the year in Pittsburgh. Yep. Of course, there's water all around us. Or in the summers when I was a kid, starting in fifth, the summer after fourth grade, mm-hmm. I lived at Chautauqua Lake. Very nice. So in Swissvale, when it rained, I used to hang out in the gutter. 
<laughs> and waved to my mother on Roslyn Street. That's the closest I got to a lake. Okay. Okay. Now, let me just clarify. First yeah. of all, I was very, very lucky to grow up that way. Second of all, I was living in a cottage. It wasn't like we had right, some right. great expansive, you know, some kind of... It's a summer you know, cottage. Yeah, it was definitely a summer cottage. Like when it got cold, yeah. there was no furnace and you had to leave and go back to Pennsylvania. However... But, but it was so beautiful in the summers. Yeah. It really, really was. And there's something... I mean, I love the ocean more than anything. Me too. But the ocean, you have to have cash, serious cash, to live at the ocean. <laughs> you sure do. But at that time, Even to visit. At that time, that was this was 1978. Regular people could, if they had really worked hard and stashed money away, could yeah. live at live at a lake could in, buy a, a house. in a little tiny place right. like my parents had. Yeah. Um, now those little tiny places cost four hundred thousand dollars. So forget it. Right. But at that, so it was kind of nice that we weren't living. We were still living in a very privileged existence, but we weren't living with a bunch of millionaires. We were living with a bunch of kind of yeah. regular people, and it was a sweet, sweet time. And your dad worked hard. Yes, and it was a sweet, sweet yeah. time. Okay, so seven gorgeous lakes to visit around Pittsburgh this summer. Oh, okay. if you can't afford a lake house or yeah. live on a lake, uh, these are all within easy drives. Have you been to Twin Lakes? Twin Lakes in Greensburg. No. Um, uh, I love Twin Lakes. They uh, have uh, the Westmoreland Arts and Heritage Festival. It's a nice big lake and easily uh, 467-acre park around okay. Twin Lakes. Easily. Uh, from my house, 20 minutes max. Keystone. Oh, sure. I mean, Keystone. Right. I can tell you stories about Keystone. <laughs> I spent many, 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 many. We do. We still do an, an annual family picnic at Keystone Lake. Mm. I mean, you know... Um, I love it so much. Um, that's not that far away. Uh, what am I say? Westmoreland County is Keystone Lake. How about Lake Arthur? Have you been to Lake Arthur? In Moraine? Yeah. Gigantic lake. 3,200-acre mm-hmm. lake, Moraine State Park. Offers a variety of activities, right? Kayaks, canoes, paddle boats, all that. That's very close by to the city. Hmm. Now, this is, this is a lake that they, they, they're selling in this article. Panther Hollow Lake. Panther Hollow Lake? <laughs> Have you been to Panther Hollow Lake? Well... You know I guess what it is. so. Not, I don't know what it is. Take your life in your hands. Is what, What's you know, Panther Hollow Lake? You know Panther Hollow. Yeah. The There's lake a, down there? Where's the lake down well, there? It's a, I mean, yeah. You've not been down there? Oh, you, yeah. You mean like in the back end of the museum? It, down below in the hollow, yeah. There's a lake? Well, I mean, yes. I don't think that's the term for that. Well, what would you call it? I mean, I'd say a, a puddle. Pond. I mean, it is a lake. That's you've a never, stretch. You've never been down there? Have you, you been down there? I've been in Panther Hollow about right. 10,000 times. I mean, on the campus of the University of Pittsburgh, there is a lake like. I mean, it's not real. How many acres must it be? Two, maybe, if you're lucky. I'm not even sure. Anyway, it's in the article. North Park Lake. Uh, now I spend a lot of time at North Park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Five mile fished? track around it. Sure, but, I fish there. Yeah. All right. Conneaut Lake. There's right? a bit of a drive. I've spent a lot of time Have at Conneaut Lake. Very yeah. nice lake. Um, and of course, very pretty properties around Conneaut Lake. The granddaddy of them all, Lake Erie. We used to have family right. vacations at Lake Erie. Sure. Yeah, Geneva on the on lake, lake in the sixties. We saw the Jaggers. Did well, you? I mean, not really. I mean, right. as a kid, you kind of like stand out the door and go, "Oh, there's the Jaggers." Right. That's for the big kids. Don't forget Chautauqua Lake. Oh yeah, which is in New York, right mm-hmm. across the state line. How far of a drive? Two and a half hours. Not bad at all. It really is not bad. Every at weekend. All. It's a beautiful lake. Wouldn't it be nice if we had like a lake party? Hmm? A lake party, yeah. yes. We do the Gateway Clipper Cruise. Why don't we do Fine. a lake party this summer? Fine. Can we? Let's do it at Panther Hollow Lake. <laughs> Come on, Word FM listeners. Everybody meet us at Panther <laughs> Lake.
The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.